Thousands of ethnic Armenians are fleeing the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. Troops from Azerbaijan have sealed control of the territory. Armenians are one of the oldest communities in the Caucasus. They have a very long history of suffering, most notably the Armenian genocide about a century ago. And that memory hangs very heavily over the population. So how vulnerable are those who remain in Nagorno-Karabakh? Dr Lawrence Brewers is an expert on the Caucasus at Chatham House in London. Well, they are extremely vulnerable in the sense that one of the conditions of the ceasefire that was agreed last week is that the Karabakh Armenian Defence Forces should disarm. So there are no men at arms anymore. There are no self-defence forces. The only outside actor that is present on the ground are the Russian peacekeepers. The latest reports suggest that they are evacuating Armenians from outlying areas to the capital, Stepanakert, known as Hankendi, in Azerbaijan. And there is no other international presence on the ground. There are no monitors, there are no journalists. So in that sense, I think, you know, we are talking about a very vulnerable civilian population. The news is alive with talk of ethnic cleansing. Now, that is a term that we associate with the genocide in the Balkans in the 1990s. I guess ethnic cleansing does not have to involve killing. In what other ways, though, could ethnic cleansing occur in Nagorno-Karabakh? We've got two competing realities that we're seeing. One is the lived experience of the people who have been fleeing Nagorno-Karabakh, the Karabakh Armenian civilian population. Let's remember that they have been living under conditions of blockade since December of last year, a blockade which in the short term appeared to be manageable with the International Committee of the Red Cross and Russian peacekeepers continuing to provide essential supplies up to June. But since then, it really did become a complete blockade. So that is a very negative experience, hardly incentivizing this population to believe that they could stay safely in Azerbaijan. And the competing reality is the messaging that we see from Azerbaijan that it is invested in a reintegration program that it is willing to provide for the safety and rights of Karabakh Armenians. And what we see is that there's been an announcement, for example, that no Azerbaijani armed forces will be present in the capital, Stepanakert, until 2025. And Stepanakert has just been connected to the Azerbaijani power grid, so electricity has been restored. But I think when we look at the longer history and the kinds of rhetoric and sort of intercommunal hatred that is you know, freely expressed, there are very few incentives for Karabakh Armenians to feel that they would be safe. And there is a kind of what you might call a credible commitment problem mm. that Azerbaijan might make commitments, but they are not seen as credible by the civil population. Yeah. As you say, history looms very heavily over the Armenian people. Remembrance of the Armenian genocide a century ago. Is this affecting the thinking of people in the enclave? I would agree that there is this sense in which history and threat perception looms very large in this particular context. 
We need to remember as well that Turkey played a critical role in the 2020 war. This is the war that lasted six weeks, nearly exactly three years ago, when Azerbaijan recovered most of the territories that it had lost to Armenians in the 1990s war, in the first war. So that sense of Turkey sort of participating in that war has added significantly, I think, to threat perception. We see that the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is going to meet with his Azerbaijani counterpart, Ilham Aliyev, in the Azerbaijani exclave of Nakhchivan. They're expected to reiterate their demands for this transit route that would cross southern Armenia. So this is also seen as deeply threatening and making people very insecure. And most of all, perhaps the sense that Russia, who's traditionally seen as a kind of guarantor, has clearly stepped aside and is now working together with Azerbaijan and Turkey in a regional realignment in which Armenia's place is extremely ambiguous. The BBC has been reporting, Lawrence, that the president of Azerbaijan, whose family I think has run Azerbaijan for about 30 years, referred to the Armenian leaders in Nagorno Karabakh as, quote, blood-sucking leeches. What response is that sort of language likely to provoke? At a rhetorical level, to put it mildly, there's a lot to be desired, and that kind of language is freely used. There has been a lot of hateful rhetoric coming from elites in Azerbaijan. And until 2018, the rhetoric wasn't that much different in Armenia under the previous government. But yes, this is obviously a really negative kind of framing of issues that can only lead, I think, to a new cycle of conflict. We're seeing thousands of people. I think the figures now stand at 5,000 Karabakh Armenians have moved across into Armenia. We can see a new mnemonic community forming based on the trauma of these few days that will replicate the cycle of conflict in the future. This is part of a strategy of conflict and the conflict is intended to be maintained and to keep going. And that's a a useful way to structure your society if you are an, an authoritarian ruler. One of the things that is of naturally interest to us on this program is that to be Armenian is to be an ethnicity. But how important, by the way, is religion to Armenian identity? Religion is a critical factor in Armenian national identity. Armenia sees itself as being uh, the first state that adopted Christianity, of course, at the beginning of the fourth century. There is a very long and illustrious tradition in the Armenian monophysite tradition. But having said that, it would be a mistake to see this as a religious conflict. One often sees references to mainly Christian Armenian, mostly Muslim Azerbaijan, and I think that's a way of locating the conflict because the countries are not necessarily well known, but it's not a conflict about religion. The parties are absolutely willing to use religion as a means to reach out to certain partners who they hope will support them, but that doesn't make this a conflict about religion. This is a conflict about sovereignty, it is about territorial control, it is about the clash of nationalisms. Do the Armenians have any legitimate claim to the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh? They clearly can claim that they are the indigenous population of that territory. They have articulated their claim in terms of self-determination which, of course, has then triggered the response from Azerbaijan's side 
that it has a right to territorial integrity. We've seen these two claims battling it out in the last few decades. Uh, but I think what we've seen is that you know self-determination was a very popular and widely accepted framing in the 1990s. The Soviet Union had just collapsed. You had all the different republics of the Soviet Union claiming self-determination. And I think there was a responsiveness to groups using that claim. Unfortunately, however, that claim became mired in the outcomes of the first war, where Armenian forces took control, occupied and and also ethnically cleansed the territories around Nagorno-Karabakh, and some 650,000 ethnic Azerbaijanis were forced to flee. So you got this ambiguity then around the claim to self-determination. And more recently, of course, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, territorial integrity has become really elevated to an absolute value. And this has given a very favorable environment for Azerbaijan to launch the operation that it did last week. Is the Azerbaijan government using, maybe not publicly, but in diplomatic back channels, that excuse uh, to Russia, keep out of this because we're only doing what you've been doing either in Ukraine or Georgia or similarly? Yes, I think it's a very interesting question how Azerbaijan has got Russia on board, basically. What we've seen last week is absolutely fascinating from the perspective of Russian conflict policy. What has happened is that Russia has done what its policy on this conflict was always designed to avoid. It has taken sides. It has sided with Azerbaijan. It stepped aside during the operation to finally quell and disperse the de facto entity that existed in Karabakh all these years. Russia is a stakeholder in a wider Turkey-Azerbaijan axis to realign the region. Azerbaijan is also very important to Russia in terms of post-Ukraine war connectivity, connecting, of course, Russia with Iran and southwards to South Asia. So, yes, this is, I think, on the one hand, a failure for Russia. And on the other, it has uh, emphasizes how Russia is a stakeholder now in these broader schemes together with Turkey and Azerbaijan. I did notice that Azerbaijan says we have 30,000 ethnic Armenians living in Azerbaijan proper. They're well integrated. They intermarry. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to see here. Is the fact that there may be 30,000 ethnic Armenians living seemingly peacefully in Azerbaijan some measure of comfort to the international community? I don't think that anybody believes that that is actually true. It is a talking point that has been reiterated repeatedly through the last three decades that there are substantial numbers and this number 30,000 is the one that gets mentioned. That is not corroborated by research done in the 1990s after the first conflict which pointed at much smaller numbers, potentially around you know, a few thousand. And we're not talking about an Armenian community that could self-express and enjoy a communal life. We're talking about spouses in mixed marriages. And even qualifying those people as, as Armenian as such is also to clarify their identity in ways that they might not have recognized. They might be half Russian or half some other nationality. We need to be very careful about those kinds of claims. And we, I think, need to recognize that there is a very negative rhetoric around Armenians in Azerbaijan, which is adding to this sense of insecurity. And this is to say nothing of the various war crimes that have been attested in 2020 and in the 
more recent flare-ups. There are claims about war crimes having taken place last week. They are not yet corroborated, but there is precedent for this. So this is not about hysteria vis-a-vis ethnic cleansing. There is a precedent for this. Every time the territory has changed hands in this conflict, it doesn't matter in which direction there has been ethnic cleansing. So there is a precedent for this. That's why we have to be very sober in our appreciation of the risks. Dr Lawrence Brewers of Chatham House in London, and this is the Religion and Ethics Report. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.